here's where we're at today. We're in 1 Corinthians. If you need a Bible, um, we've got Bibles that are coming down the aisles right now with these uh, two strapping young men. Um, But if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, We'll give it to you. Uh, You'll have to say your name and where you're from, but... (laughs) Uh, it's really good. To, uh, I'm in Moore Park next week. Um, but uh, what we're doing is we're trying to study the book of First Corinthians because in it, I think, if any book speaks into our culture right now, it's the book of First Corinthians. It speaks to so many relevant issues. And so what we've been trying to do is to get to this point where we understand what Paul was saying to them 2,000 years ago, but also how it applies into our lives today so that we can really understand the heart of God. Now, let me just throw this little graphic up there. We've been kind of working through this, but one of the things that Paul's trying to address for the Corinthians is that every single person in some way has wrong thinking, and I know I've said this a lot, but if you don't think you have wrong thinking, you're wrong, all right? Now, I'm hoping that eventually I start to believe that, and I hope eventually all of us start to believe that, that all of us in here are in desperate need for God to change our thinking. Now, with it, the good news is we've talked about this, and what he does, like especially like in 1 Corinthians 4 and 6 and 7, he talks about this, this concept that we are not to go past what's written, that we have God's heart revealed to us in the Word of God, that we're in this privileged position that the Corinthians were also in, in a way, in which Paul is saying, look, get the heart of God. Understand who God is and what he's doing in this world and how he's operating. And so with this, that's why he throws at them the word of God. But it can't just stop there. He also says to them in 1 Corinthians 2.16, this idea that, he, that is mind-blowing. Those of us that have the Holy Spirit have the mind of Christ. See, I don't think we in the church today believe this. I don't think we believe that we can think like Jesus, walk like Jesus, talk like Jesus, interact with people like Jesus. I've said this before, we're not Jesus. But the idea is, is that we have the capacity in this world to live as God intended. That means everybody in here. Now, if you're somebody in here that doesn't know Christ, we want to talk to you today about that. But in that, we can we can live the way God intended, we have the mind of Christ and the capacity to think along those lines. Now, what Paul's been doing is he's been working through this, and the first issue that he came to in 1 Corinthians 5 was sexual immorality. Imagine that. Sexual immorality has been around for a long time. And he writes into this culture in which a young man was sleeping with his stepmom. We haven't had that in our church yet, but at that particular culture, that was what was going on. Men were going off to temples to sleep with prostitutes, thinking it was a form of worship, and it's no big deal because I'm going to heaven anyways. And so he's writing into that to tell them, you are not living as God intended, and he's going to take them back to the heart of God to help them to get to that point. Now, you know this, that in every single church, anytime something goes wrong, there's a group of people that step in and think, okay, We need to exit the heart of God and create new rules. And so that the rules that they created, we find in chapter 7, was, I know what we do. In order to protect from anyone having sexual immorality, the new rule is, is no sex. Now, some of the people are sitting there going, what? But in it, that's what they'd probably brought in. And Paul has to tell them, no, that's not the answer. 
That in fact, when he gets into verse 6, he's trying to tell them, no, some of you in here that are married, that God has called into marriage, he's actually given you this, this opportunity to enjoy sex, but inside of the safety and security of marriage because sex has an intimacy and it has an absolute vulnerability to it that when God designed it, he designed it to operate inside of the, of, of the safe confines of marriage. And so he then looks at the people basically and says, those of the, you that are married, go enjoy that. Fuel, the, just fan the flame of your love for one another. Enjoy what God has given to you. And in fact, he even throws this at the end of it, that if you don't engage in that way as a married couple, I promise you, he says, Satan will step into that and he will stir problems. So it's a way in which we protect each other. Now the key issue, and open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 6. This is where we're going to kind of launch out of today so that we can kind of dive into where Paul's going. Is he's trying to help them now understand the difference. He's moved from sex into this idea then of, of how do we then deal with marriage and singleness. Now watch what he says in verse 6. He says, now as a concession, and if you remember right, two weeks ago I said, it's not really a concession, it's this idea, look, I, just, I want you to be aware it's not a command. In other words, I'm just being Pastor Paul right here. I'm trying to talk to you as a pastor. I wish that all were as I myself am. But look, each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, look, it's good to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, in other words, if, if there's not the capacity right at this point, and I'm not talking about just the idea that somehow I think I, just, I need to go have sex so I'm going to get married. That's not what he's talking about. But if God has designed them to enjoy a relationship in that way, they should marry. Because it's better to marry than to try to hold back the passion that God's called you to. So in other words, the first thing he lays out on the distinction between whether we get married or stay single is, is that there are some of you that have a self-control that is given to you by God that you don't have to go engage in sex. And so with that, he says, allow that self-control to happen and remain single. But there's others of you that are supposed to. Now go down to verse 17. He's going to kind of clarify this more. He says, but listen, only let each person person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him to which God has called him this is in the better way to say it, this is my rule of thumb in all the churches so he's just saying look we have single people and we have married people now today I'm going to speak on this idea of what it means to remain single now a lot of you married people in here are going to go oh man do I have to sit through this and the answer is do you realize how many single people have sat through marriage talks in here and you are now going to sit here and go, I'm not going to sit around in there. Honey, let's go. Let's get the kids. Go to Denny's. <laughs> I would say on one level, you need to understand this. My firm belief is there is no such thing as a healthy church until we bring back Paul's call to singleness inside of the church. We will never, ever be able to glorify God the way he's called us to unless we have a vibrant singles community within here. And I'm not talking about a dating community. I'm talking about singles. People that authentically believe that they're going to forego certain things in this life, even the pleasures of marriage and the enjoyment of sexuality, 
because they believe what God has for them is greater than anything this world has to offer in that arena. But those of you that are married in here, your job is to show people what God intended marriage and sex looks like. So in other words, we will never have a complete picture of what it means to be transformed to the image of Jesus, to display God to the world. And so I want those of you that are in here that are married today to understand this, the high call of singleness, which is an equally high call to marriage, so that we can really be this church that we set out to be, our purpose statement, to give an accurate picture to God, of God to the world. Also... I found a lot of you married people have some weird quirks. Not me, you. <laughs> Somebody's single, and inside of the American church today, we're like, oh, what's wrong with them? They must have issues, as if married people don't. And then all of a sudden, and my wife's this way, and I have to constantly rebuke that woman. She goes, oh, we need to set them up. And I was looking at her, and I go, why? Well, so they can be happy like us. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I'm like, dang straight, girl. We got the best marriage in us. <laughs> but it's this weird thing, right? We have a culture within the United States that says, unless you're married, you're not happy like me, as if everybody that's married is like, you know, puppy dogs and rainbows. I'm not going to go there. So, but with it, right, it's just this thing in which Paul's going to write into them, into our culture to help us understand there's a beautiful calling to singleness. And I think there's a lot of people that, and I know within here, and I'm going to try to be sensitive to this, I know there's a lot of you that are single that desire to be married. But I think in your desire to be married, you're missing the privilege of singleness now. And there's a lot of married people that wish they were single You're laughing because you know it's true <laughs> that are missing the privilege of being married right now. And so what Paul's going to say when you look down, go down there, look at, at chapter 7 again. This is why he's going to say to them in verse 24, So brothers, whatever condition each was called in, just let them remain in God. Stay in the place God has you. The other thing off of it is parents. We tend to think in our head that our kids will not be satisfied unless they get married. And pretty soon they start getting 28, 29, 30, and you start saying things like, when are you going to give me grandkids? What if God's called them to be single? Who are you to determine that? See, in that, I don't think it's our job to determine their marital status. Our job is to help them walk with God and allow God to determine their marital status. Now, dang, getting Baptist in here. So <clears throat> with that, that's what we're going to try to do today. Now, I, I want to speak to you as a guy. I am not single. I got married young. And so there's somebody out there single going, you know, who are you? Well, you already know I'm a loser, so you got that going for you. But the man writing this, this passage we're going to be in today was single. We don't know how he got single. We don't know if he never got married. My particular view is the way he talks through things is he was probably married at one point, and either his wife died and he became a widow, or else his wife walked away from him because he chose to follow Jesus Christ. 
So the guy that's writing this today understands the heart of what it means to be single. But the main thing I want to get across today is that I believe there are some of us in here that are called to be married and others called to be single, but for one purpose, that we might display God to the world and what he's intended. And everyone has a part. So what I'm going to do is lay out now just kind of these ideas of of what the reasons for remaining single. Now, let me caveat this. This week is going to be kind of the negative reasons to remain single. So let me say this. If you get done, if I get done with today and you think Todd must hate his marriage, I don't. Life is good with Lisa and I. But Paul is going to lay out some of the negative realities of what it means to get married. Next week, Josh is going to be, he's going to be preaching. He gets the positive thing. So I'm going to be bad cop and he's going to be good cop. And that's how we're going to, we're going to kind of approach it. But Paul's now, look at verse 25. Let's start to look through some of the reasons for remaining single. Here we go. Verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, it's just better to say those that have never been married before. I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment who's won by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now just stop for a second. All he's saying is, look, you're called either marriage or singleness. I'm just trying to be a pastor here. I just want to shepherd this particular church. Now, here we go. Verse 26. Here's the first reason that he lays out for us of remaining single. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good good for a person to remain as he is. So the first thing out of this is just he's going to talk through is just the pressure of life. He's laid out the fact that can you, can you can, are able to control your, your sexual desires, then man, you should remain single potentially. But it's not just about sex. But now all of a sudden he's going to add to this, this idea of just the pressures of life. Now that word distress is really key here. It can mean a lot of different things. It, it can mean either just the pressures of just everyday life, just the, the stress of everyday life, which I think in some ways he's meaning. And those of you that are married in here, you know what I'm talking about. You thought that when you got married, you remember that? That when you got down on that knee and asked that girl to marry you, I'm going to have the best marriage ever. And then you got married. And you realized, not the first week, but the second week, man, they lied to me in premarital. Now, some of you, not my marriage, ask your spouse. But, there, but with it, there's just certain pressures of life that come along at us that that could be what he's saying. But I think he's talking about something a little bit differently here. That word stress can also mean this idea of intense pressure, intense stress. And probably what he's meaning is this idea of persecution. In other words, what he's saying is, for those of us that are followers of Jesus Christ, there's an intense reality in life that Christians face. And so in light of that, he's looking at them and saying, are you sure that you're called to marriage? Now, Paul was a man, he understood persecution. You read the book of 2 Corinthians, and he talks about the fact that he was beaten, he was whipped, he was stoned, he was left for dead. 
He was ostracized completely. In other words, he is a man that understands the distress of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And I think he even lays out a little understanding that if people, we're going to send people to some of the remote, most remote and difficult parts of the world to be able to engage in global ministry, we might want to consider this reality that maybe we need to start sending single people. Why? Because Paul got that when you take a wife and a kid along, it adds a whole new reality of worrying about them when you're in that kind of a situation. And at this particular time, little did the Corinthians know, but within less than 15 years, a guy named Nero was going to start his persecution on the church. It would last for almost 200 years. And in that, you even read about one guy, Erastus, a man that's involved in the church at Corinth. He was a city official. You hear about him dying. But from what we also understand, there were people that had to watch their wives and kids be killed. And Paul's saying, are you sure you want to get married in light of that? Now, for a lot of us in this room, we think, no, that's interesting for them. Here's something for you. Historians tell us that this could be the greatest persecution against Christians ever on this planet. All around the world right now, we have brothers and sisters in Christ that are going through immense persecution. Paul would probably look at them and say, are you sure you want to get married? Now still in the back of your head, yeah, but Todd, this is the land of the free, the home of the brave. It's funny, I was reading Matthew 24 and 25. It's called the Olivet Discourse. And Jesus talked about this idea in which towards the end times, there's going to come a unique persecution and distress on the church like we've never known before. And you look around at the signs of the time, and I'm not going to sit up here today and say, next year, April 22nd, 2015, I'm not saying Jesus is coming back. I don't know when Jesus is going to come back. But isn't there this weird side of it that he could right now? And if that's true, if he could be coming back right now, I think I'd be looking at a lot of people that are single and I would have Pastor Paul's heart looking out and saying, are you sure in light of that? Because now me as a dad sitting here thinking through this is that you know history can turn on a dime. And even though we live in the United States, in, inside of the culture that we are, and I tell you what, it feels like it's just fraying and falling apart couldn't it turn and couldn't I be, even within my lifetime, potentially faced with the rigors and difficulties of watching my wife and kids potentially go through persecution? And Paul is just saying, are you sure that you want to get married? He's saying that's the distress we face. But it's not just that. When you go down through it, go back to chapter 7. He's kind of in the same way of the pressures of life. And in verse 28, you'll see in there, just towards the end, there's one sentence in there. He also says this statement, Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would like to spare you of that. Now that word world, worldly troubles is probably a bad translation when we think through it. The idea of worldly troubles, he uses this Greek word sarks, which doesn't mean worldly, it means fleshy. So with it, he's saying not only is there pressure from outside, but he's saying there's also this just thing about who we are as people. Are you sure you want to get married? 
Because when two people get married, we oftentimes think it's going to get better. But anytime you put two fleshy, sinful people together, do you honestly think it's going to get better? Man, I remember as a kid, I'd go with like my friends on vacation. You're like, oh, these are my best buddies and all the planet. We're going to head off. Man, within two weeks, you're fist fighting. Why? Because you press yourselves together. When he talks about this idea of fleshy, that's what he means, is that when you put two people that battle daily with sin together, if you think in your head that it's going to get better, you're crazy, because anytime one flesh, and that's the idea of marriage, happens, those of you that are married in here know this, to the surface comes all your junk, doesn't it? Amen. And if you don't believe that again, ask your spouse. I asked my wife, I was like, hey, you know, when we got married, like, what do you think about me now? She looks at me, and it's kind of like I said two weeks ago. She said it again. You're improving. But there's something about that other person. And again, on one side, it's good because my sin gets addressed. And so there's a beautiful transformation that happens where God shows me what a sinful jerk I am and all the problems my wife has, which you can pray for her. And, and so, but with it, it's just this thing where Paul says, that's what's going to happen. Are you sure you want to go down there? In fact, this word for trouble here, it's funny, it, it's, it's this Greek word flipsis, and it was spoke when you would step on grapes to produce juice. Man, you notice when you squeeze together those two people, the juice that comes out is flesh. And Paul's saying, are you sure you want to go down that path? Then, and this isn't in this text, more sinners potentially come into your home called children. I was the best parent until I had kids. I'd look around, I'd be like, kids would be bad at Target. You bring them over here, I'll spank them for you. I mean, I was just... And then I had children. Now you add those little suckers into this mix, and it just squeezes together, and they're little reprobates that don't have the Holy Spirit yet. I mean, mine are seven, six, two, and not even one yet. I can't imagine what my world's going to be like when they become teenagers. And she's sitting there going, oh, you don't know. <laughs> you don't. It is, right? And Paul is looking at these single people going again. These ones that had never been married before. And Russell and Lisa are sitting here. I just realized that. You shouldn't be here right now. I'm, I'm premarital counseling them. They're getting all the answers to our first session. Leave. <laughs> but he's just looking at single people going, oh, are you sure? You positive this is what you want to do? There are just pressures in life, being married. If you don't have to go down this path, are you sure you want to go? Now, you know he's thinking then in his head there's going to be some people that are married going, well, then I'm out of this sucker. If that's the case, then look what he says. Look at his answer, verse 28, or verse 27. In order to stop, are you bound to a wife? Then don't seek to be free. I know these things I'm saying, and you're thinking, oh, then I'm out of here. 
I'm gone. Or, are for you free from a wife, he says in there. Well, then, do not seek a wife. Stay as you are, he's saying. I'm just talking to single people, saying, before you go down that path, are you sure you're supposed to go down there? So that's the second reason. The first one has to do with just the, the capacity and your ability to, to be self-controlled in sex. And the next one just has to do with the pressures of life. Now, the next one he brings in is found in verse 29, which is a pretty interesting one. He starts off and he just says this. This is what I mean, brothers. You can almost just tell Pastor Paul, okay, now check it out. He's going to take us to a whole new level. The appointed time, he says, has grown very short. Now, starting in verse 29 and going through verse 31, he's going to try to help us understand the idea of the brevity of life. Man, I'm only, you know, 42 years old, but even when I talk to people that are 70, 80, 90, doesn't it just feel like life is here today and gone tomorrow? When he uses that word time, he's not, he's not talking about calendar time or clock time. He's talking about this set time, this age on the earth. The idea was is when they would take a scroll, they would use this word, and they would start to roll a scroll up. As you're coming closer and closer to the end, you start to know that it is short. Now, where did he get this crazy idea? He got it from Jesus. In Matthew 22, Luke 20, Mark 12, Jesus even talked about the, the brevity of life. And they were asking him about marriage. And he said, do you understand that when we get to the eternal kingdom and we're with God forever, nobody will be married anymore. Now, despite what our friends the Mormons say, you won't be married for eternity. Now, some of you in here going, come on. <laughs> you know, others of you are disappointed. I'm, I mean, there's one side of that I'm disappointed. But the idea is, is that no longer will we have that type of a marital intimacy because the entire church, as the bride of Christ, now enjoys Jesus Christ as our husband forever. He wants them to get that this is for just a short time. Why is singleness greater? It's because that's the way we're going to be for eternity. Life is just short. Well, he also talks about it to kind of help us understand it more. You have like a James 4 where, you remember reading James 4, he calls it a vapor. And it's gone. And any time that God talks about something that's just, it handles for just a short time, he says, I want you to hold on to that lightly. And one of the greatest things that my wife, as we've looked at our time in foster care, is how to hold on to those kids lightly. They come into our home and, you know, when a little baby comes in, you just absorb your life into it and you feed them and enjoy them and change them and burp them and you, they also annoy you. But there's just this side of it where you fall in love with this kid and then all of a sudden the foster system says, we'll take that kid now. And you have to let that kid go. Why? Because it's temporary. Marriage is to be held lightly. Now, the question is, how lightly? Look at verse 29. It's going to help us understand how lightly marriage is supposed to be held. He goes on and says, from now on, watch this. Those who have wives should live as though they had none. What, Paul? 
think what it has to do is, is something really big here, where he's kind of like from a, a Colossians 3-2 standpoint. He says, set your, your minds on, on heavenly things, not on earthly things. I want you to get your mind so consumed in the eternal that, that the eternal begins to shape your temporal reality. That in other words, inside of marriage, I want you to live your marriage in such a way that eternity frames how you treat your marriage now. See, we think we're going to be married forever, don't we? We treat it that way. We coddle it that way. And I don't think he's thinking now, okay, I want you to be indifferent to your spouse. That's not what he's saying. I don't think he's trying to think if you're really, really spiritual, you'll neglect your wife and your kids. I think instead he's laying out a principle that Jesus talked about. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and what? All these things will follow along after it. In other words, you are so consumed in your intimacy with God that that begins to take over. Now with it, he's going to then talk about, look down there in, in verses uh, kind of 31 and following. He's, or verse 31, he says, not only that, but this world is passing away. And then he talks about it above that. And look at that marriage and weeping and earthly joy and the need to buy anything and kind of worldly pleasure. In other words, what he's saying is, is that, look, marriage is passing. It will give way to this future life in which you share with Jesus as God is your father. So hold on to marriage lightly. Weeping. Weeping will cease away, but we know this, that we, the reason it's going to cease away is because God is going to wipe away all your tears. Earthly joy, down in kind of verse 30. It comes and goes, it ebbs and flows, it rises and falls, but he's trying to get across to us that eventually one day all of it will disappear into the joy of eternity because we're going to be with the God of the universe. We don't need to buy anything in, when we, once we get there. Why? Because when we're in the eternal kingdom, we inherit all the new heavens and all of the new earth. We will enjoy it with Christ forever. Worldly pleasure. It's this idea it will be replaced with all the thrills of the pleasure that God has for us one day. So in other words, he's saying, be careful to hold on to all those things lightly. Be careful. And if there's anything that I think speaks into the church today, it's that. We are strangers. We're aliens. We don't belong here. We're living right now in the Motel 6. I'm serious. I think we think this is as good as it's going to get. When's the last time you thought, oh, I can't wait to go stay at a Motel 6? From an eternal, amazing standpoint, God has the four seasons in mind. And we're satisfied at Motel 6. He's saying, hold on to them loosely. Now, now, so then what does that mean? Let me just kind of try to frame it a little bit. Let me try to think through this with you. In other words, he's saying, don't let your marriage be a distraction from your intimacy with Christ. Don't let your emotions be a distraction from your enjoyment of Christ. Don't let worldly pleasures become this thing in which it sneaks in and it takes away my intimacy and pleasure in Christ and Christ alone. Don't let the buying and the consuming, all the materialism that comes in, consume me and keep me from enjoying Jesus Christ. In other words, now, now to look at single people, he's asking, in light of all the emotion of life, in light of all the material things of life, in light of just all of the worldly pleasures that constantly stir us to cause us to forget our intimacy and enjoyment 
faith and passion for Jesus, are you sure you want to add one more thing that could distract you from an enjoyment of Jesus? Now you would say to me, no, 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 no. Not my marriage. I promise you at different times our marriages have distracted us from our enjoyment of Jesus. And Paul is asking single people, are you sure you want to do that? That's what he's trying to get here. He's trying to, again, pull us back into this idea of, of seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. In other words, I can now, when I pursue Christ, he takes care of emotions. When I pursue Christ, he takes care of all my worldly pleasures. When I pursue Christ, he gives me perspective on what I'm supposed to do and live with in this world. And the idea is, is that if you're married in here, you need to quit worrying about your marriage and start worrying about your intimacy with Jesus. Because if I pursue God, he'll take care of my marriage. Now think about this. We are preoccupied with fix my marriage, aren't we? When people come in for counseling, it's like, oh, fix my marriage. And they hate it when I look at them and say, I'm not going to fix your marriage. I'm going to help you fix your relationship with Jesus. And I promise you what comes behind it is a correct marriage. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Now, I know there's some of you that are sitting out there that are single, and it was interesting. One guy that I was talking with, I was at a golf thing. I just asked him a few questions real briefly about singleness and struggles of it. And One of the things he said to me was just talking through the issue of loneliness. My mom and I get together a lot. She's single, and she talks to me a lot about the issue of loneliness and singleness. Christmas, Thanksgiving, all these family things to which I would say I get it. There's some burdens that single people bear. But if you honestly think that you will be less lonely because you get married, you've bought into a lie. Some of the loneliest people on the planet are married. They go in thinking it's going to be a cure for my loneliness, but because they haven't found their sufficiency in Christ first, they just find loneliness inside of marriage as it rejects exactly what they were looking for. Some of you are out there, and especially the guys, you're sitting there going, oh, I'm going to get married because I can't control my libido. Try proposing to your girl for that one. Hey, honey, let's get married. I can't control my libido. I'm sure she's going to be, yes, I've been looking for a man like you all my life. The other thing that happens, though, is we think that somehow this is going to be the cure for my sexual uh, immorality. We forget that we have sexual immorality because we have a selfish view of sex. Now you bring that selfish view of sex into marriage, and what does it do? It amplifies and gets worse. That's not the cure. That at the core of it, this is why Paul is saying what he's saying. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And God will take care of the rest of it coming behind you. So let me just talk to those of you who are single real quick as we finish today. Those of you that have heard me today that have said, you know what, I'm great being single. I would just say to you, I am so thrilled you're a part of Cornerstone. We will never, ever, ever be able to fulfill the mission of conveying an accurate picture of God to our world unless we have you. We're so excited and stoked you're here. Man, please, 
don't exit here. Because I know, man, in the American church, it's so weird in its view of marriage. And I'm talking now to the married people. Quit being weird towards the single people. Next time you say to them, oh, I'm sorry for being single, they have my permission to give you a Charlie horse. I'm serious. <laughs> in love. Or at least give you stink face. Now with it, we're stoked you're here. But I also get there's some of you in here that you're looking at me going, yeah, Todd, but I desire marriage. And I would say to you, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And I promise you behind it will come an intended time and purpose that God has for you. Now to those that are married in here, the single people are not in our church to be your babysitters. The single people are not in our church to solely take care of all those ministries that we don't feel like doing. The single people are in our church because God, by his grace, has given to them to us as a means of glorifying the God of the universe. So therefore, those of you that are married in here need to start understanding they're not broken. They don't need to be fixed by you. This is not a dating service. You're not a matchmaker. Your job is to be a fellow believer in Jesus Christ with them. Now... No, I'm not even done. There's more coming. I've still got like two more minutes. <laughs> but also, I understand that there are some married people in here right now that wish they weren't in their marriage. Probably the only thing worse than the desire to be married is the desire not to be married. And so to you, I'd say the same thing I said to single people. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all the other things will take care of themselves. But also to those of you that are married people, quit trying to fix the destiny for your child. God knows what he wants them to be. He knows whether he's called them to singleness or to marriage. And some of you are sitting there going, but I want grandkids. I can't imagine life without grandchildren. Really? You think giving up grandchildren won't be repaid multiple times over inside of heaven? Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will come along behind it. Because I've seen way too many kids that have been sent off to pursue the American dream of marriage and college and houses and tire swings and dogs and two and a half kids and the perfect marriage only to have their life absolutely shipwrecked because they didn't learn to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And finally, to those of you in here that don't know Jesus Christ, let me just say this to you. Jesus Christ has a purpose and a plan set out for you if you join him. A lot of you think you're single, and so therefore I'm going to go sow my wild oats. I'm just going to get the most out of life. And I'm here to tell you the most out of life is when I seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things that we added to you. So we'd love to talk with you about how you can know Jesus today. For those of you that are in here that are followers of Jesus Christ, let me just say this. You are kids of the king. You are followers of of Jesus Christ who conquered sin and death, and he's coming back one day to establish his kingdom. So in light of that, we're good. 
I don't care what state you're in. This time is short, and Jesus is coming back. And so I would just say, let's just, let's quit freaking out and being weird as Christians. We're good. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks so much for today. Thanks for your word. Father, uh, sometimes I feel like a bumbling idiot talking about singleness. So I pray that your spirit will allow it to land out there in the way it's intended. God, would you do the supernatural work inside of Cornerstone that we might be a church that wholeheartedly seeks first your kingdom and your righteousness, trusting that you've got everything in hand. Would you give us that grace, please? In your precious name we pray. Amen.